Will you pray with me, please? Father, we come before you today and ask that you would be with us during this hour. We pray, Father, that you might speak through your word, that you might lift us so that we know that you are a God who loves us, who a God who is faithful, a God who calls us to be your people. Now bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Some of you may know that my background is not uh, Episcopalian or Anglican, and you probably have figured that out from my preaching style uh, before. And um, so um, what God gave me, uh, I'm Evangelical Free Church. I was ordained Evangelical Free Church before God in his mercy uh, allowed me to be ordained in the Anglican Communion, and for that I'm most grateful. One of the things that I always wanted to do as I um, preached what the what what evangelical free church called a sermon, which we call a homily, uh, is that it was always important for me that I learned something from the scripture that God was had given me, and that I try to give you something that uh, you can learn from the scripture. And today we're looking at a passage, and I want to look at that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. So if you have your uh, uh, brochure, you might want to take a look at that while we're doing that. But as I was preparing for this, my thought went over to a passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul writes to his young um, protege, Timothy, and he says to him, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, when Paul wrote those words, the scriptures to which he was referring were none other than the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament as we know it today. And so Paul writes that to Timothy, but Paul not only writes that to Timothy, he has already shown that that's exactly what he wants to do with the scriptures of the Old Testament, Particularly, we see that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Uh, he will use the Old Testament scriptures to warn the people and to teach the people about some things that happen. As a matter of fact, today he warned in the scriptures that idolatry brings discipline, but God is faithful to provide a way of escape when one is tempted. So as we study the uh, the passage that's before us in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10, verse 1. Uh, one of the things that I do note there in your brochure says, I don't want you, I, I, I want you to know. Well, in that passage in the Greek, there is the four I want you to know. And usually when we see that word, one of the things that we need to understand is that this passage is being built on something that has gone before it. There is a context, as Father Don often reminds us, a text without a context is a pretext. We can preach anything we want. But when we look at it in context, there are certain things that are there. And that's what we want to do this morning. So the suggestion that I would make to you, the broad context in which this passage is located begins in chapter 8, verse 1. And in it, he's talking about offering meat to idols. Um, and then he will come back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, and he will say the words, Therefore, my beloved brethren, flee from idolatry. 
in the text, we will see the people of Israel committed idolatry. So the text in which we're dealing is a, is a text in which the people of God, the Corinthians, are warned against doing something that the people of God in the Old Testament have already done. See? So when we come over there and we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he will say to us, don't eat meat that's been offered to idols in a religious fashion. But the thing that's interesting in that passage and in, verse, uh, in chapter 9 is that he deals with the concept of liberty. What is my liberty? What am I allowed to do? And one of the things he says to the Corinthians is that there are people who, when they go to the market, they are buying meat. They don't know whether that meat has been meat that has been offered to idols or it's just meat that came from some cow out in the field. Okay? So, but he does say, if somebody says to you, you know, this is meat that's been offered to idols, the thought pattern there might be, these people might think that we are worshiping an idol if we eat it. Now, he says to them, you know better. You know that there's nothing in that idol. Nothing has happened with that meat. But in order that you keep from causing somebody to stumble and move away from God, don't eat the meat. It's a liberty that you can give up. Paul comes over into chapter 9. Paul's an apostle. The apostles would go into places, and the people would provide for them. Paul says, I came to you. I came as an apostle, but I didn't make you pay a salary for me. Now, don't get to anything in your head. Okay? Don't get anything in your head. So we can move on past that. Okay? But the idea was that Paul knew that these people, if he said to them, I need this, or, you need to do this, that that would have moved them away from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he became bivocational. He was a tent maker. And he was a tent maker while he was there in Corinth so that the people didn't have to worry about that. He says, I had the liberty to, as a, as a, uh, as, and right as an apostle to demand this of you. But I didn't want it to get in, in, in the way of Jesus Christ. Okay? So he comes on over, and that's the broad context with don't let your liberty be an idolatrous thing for you so that it controls your life. Instead, look to God to give guidance and direction in your life that will allow you to do things that will lift people up in their faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? The second more specific context is found in chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And in chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, what we find there is, do, not, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
So the immediate context is the context of I'm running a race. One of the things that we always have to realize is that when we come to know Jesus as our Savior, we begin a race. And it's not a sprint. It's not a sprint. I have to tell you, even if it were a sprint, I would die in the first 10 meters. Okay? But it is not a sprint. It's more like a 5,000 meter or a 10,000 meter where if you go out so fast and say, look what I can do, look how fast I am, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get passed and you're not going to be able to finish. But what he says to us is, go out there, control yourself in God. Now, the people of Corinth would have, been recog- would have recognized the, the, uh, the idea here because there were games called the Isthmian games. They were held on the Isthmus of Corinth, and the Corinthian uh, city was the one that was responsible. The thing that you need to understand is that probably next to the Olympics, this was one of the greatest of the games that the Greeks had. So the people were saying, I know what he's talking about. I know how that you have to run steadily and keep your eye on the prize, okay? So that's the context in which he writes 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So we come down, uh, we come down to this passage and the first thing that I'd like for you to see is that the people uh, that the, 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 we, we need to review the warning that Paul gives to the Corinthians and by extension gives to us. The first thing in this passage that it seems to show is that Paul was dealing with covenant people. Look what it says. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, that is the Israelites, were all under the cloud all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So in the first uh, five verses here, He's telling us the passage or the, the, what he wants us to see from the Old Testament scriptures. He's talking about the people of Israel. It's kind of interesting there, isn't it? Two words, that, there are two things there that we might pick out almost immediately. The first one is the word baptized. Do we ever use that in our Christian circles? Absolutely, we do. The second thing that we might pick out is that the people were sped, fed with spiritual food, and drink. Do we ever talk about that? We do in the Eucharist, don't we? Oh, I'm wondering, I'm I'm just sitting there wondering to myself if the Corinthians recognized what he was talking about here. Because you know what? Later on, he's going to talk about how the Eucharist is taken. Okay? So, here we find out that these are people of God. I love it. He said the first thing that I want you to see is that God's care and love for his people. Isn't it true? The passage that we read this morning in Exodus, what happens? God says, I heard the cry of my people. I heard the cry of my people. I've come to help. Moses, I want you to go down, and I want you to lead them out. 
And Moses said, I can't. I can't talk. And God said, don't worry about it. But I can't talk. That's okay. I'll send a Aaron. It'll be all right. Don't worry. Well, what happens when they say to me, who sent me? Tell them that I am sent you. When we use the word I am, we're talking about the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. And in that, what we're talking about is the, the covenant-making God, the God who made a covenant with his people. And so he says, to, uh, he says to Moses, go down, tell them that I am sent me, and you lead them on out. Well, that's exactly what happens, isn't it? We have the uh, Passover, they leave, they go on up, he gets them into the wilderness, the people of God, and Moses says to them, listen, what I want you to do, God wants you to listen to his voice. God wants you to listen to his voice. You know what they say? Okay, we will. We will. All right? And he says to him, you have been baptized into Moses. Now, what does he mean? Well, he means you've been baptized or identified with the things that Moses is telling you. The God of Moses. You're being identified with the God of Moses. On uh, the Saturday before Easter, we will do baptism. What the people will be saying is, I am identifying with Jesus Christ. I am making a covenant to be what God wants me to be. Okay? And that's what the people did. I love it. They, they did. They had said that they were ready to go. They had seen the miracles of the parting of the Red Sea, which allowed them to escape the death that would, would have been theirs on. Uh, from, from, from Pharaoh when they stepped onto dry ground of the Red Sea with the walls of water on each side, they would place themselves in, they placed themselves by faith in God's hands, didn't they? I mean, here you go. Here's the Red Sea over here. Here's the Red Sea over here. We're walking through on dry ground. Hopefully, God will get us through this before that water comes back. They placed their faith that God would do that. They became, they, they started to listen to what God had done, just like you and I. In baptism, hear that our Savior Jesus died on the cross for us and promises us new life in him, in faith, and we, in our baptism, covenant that we will be his people. We will be his people. The second thing that I'd point out in this passage, you see it, it says um, they, they ate and they drank spiritual food from the rock. It is, not, it, is it not interesting that the passage indicates that that rock was none other than Jesus? And you know what? That rock followed them all over the place. He followed them all over the place. That's what it says, isn't it? He followed them all over the place. That rock is Jesus. When we come to the Eucharist, we're going to say words and we're going to say that now this is the body and the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ given to us. I was studying today's homily. I, I came across the definition of the word sacrament. Most of us use the definition from St. Augustine. It's an outward sign of an inward grace. That's from the third century. Now, the word sacrament isn't used. Let me hasten to say, the word sacrament is not used here. Okay? 
But if the word sacrament had been used here, do you know what the people of Israel or the people of Corinth would have been thinking about that word? Let me read the definition of the word sacrament at the time. The Latin word sacramentum was used in Roman law to describe a legal sanction in which a man placed his life or property in the hands of the supernatural powers that upheld justice and honored solemn contracts. It later became an oath of allegiance taken by soldiers to their commander when embarking on a new campaign, sworn in a sacred place, and using a formula having to do with religious connotation. What is it? It's an oath. I make an oath. When I do a sacrament, I'm making an oath. I'm making an oath that God wants me to do what God wants me to be. When I look back at the book of Exodus, it's kind of interesting to see. The people would come out. Moses said to them, I want you to follow God's law because God wants you to follow him the law. And then we come to Exodus chapter 19. Moses goes up on the mountain, right? He's going to talk to God. He's up there for at least 40 days, 40 nights. And the people who have said, we're going to do everything God tells us to do. You know what they did? What did they do? They made a golden calf to worship. I mean, after all, they had been in the land for 400 years, and now 40 days. We don't even know if this Moses is going to come back. Can we really trust God? After all, he's the one that brought us out of Egypt. He's the one that led us through the Red Sea. Do we know that we can trust this God? Uh, we laugh at that, don't we? We laugh at that. But how often do we say to God, do you really know what you're doing in my life? Can I give my oath to you to do what you want me to do because you loved me and you gave Jesus for me? You see what I'm saying to you? I find these words to be interesting that right before they were received, the Ten Commandments, right before they received the Ten Commandments. They followed idols when they had promised that they would follow God. In verse 5, it says that, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. That word overthrown is kind of interesting. It kind of has the connotation that the bones were strewn all over the place. You do know, don't you? that there were only two adults that came out of Egypt that went into the promised land. Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb. All of the other adults died in the wilderness. It was only the children of the adult that made it into the promised land. You see, what happened was that God warned them. God warned them, and he warned them over and over and over and over again until they said, you know what? We're going to do what we want to do. And God said, fine. You're not going to have the rest that I promised you. By the way, the promised land is not heaven. The promised land is his kingdom where he blesses and keeps. Because after all, they got into the promised land and what did they have to do? had to fight. 
God was going to go before them. They had the same temptations. Believe me, when we get to heaven through faith in Jesus Christ alone, there's no fights. There's no having to depend on anything else. God's going to be there. But I have to move on because you will be upset with me because you're late for lunch. So, let me say, from this passage, the second thing that we learn is that God is always faithful to his people. You know, just that like time after time after time, he said to the Israelites, I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me. And then when they get into the land and they get their king, he would say to them, stop doing what you're doing. Stop doing what you're doing. If you don't stop doing what you're doing, I'm going to send in the Assyrians. I'm going to send in the Babylonians. But how patient was God with his people? And God is patient with us and faithful to provide everything we need. You know, throughout the wilderness time, their clothes didn't wear out, their shoes didn't wear out, and they had food to eat. God was always faithful. So in his faithfulness, God warned his people of the actions that, he would, that, that would discipline. So he says in verse 6, Now these things uh, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then he comes on, he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did. Now, And then he says in verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands be careful, okay? So, when we talk about his faithfulness, we see that God, that, that, that uh, what, what uh, Paul does is he warns them against outright idolatry. He says, don't do it. He will come back in verse 14 and say, don't do it. And you say, well, I, 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 I haven't put up a golden calf. You do understand what idolatry is, don't you? Idolatry is anything that comes between me and my fellowship with God. Anything that I make more important than God is an idol to me. Probably the best way for me to tell what my idols are, if I have idols, is to look at my time and look at my treasures. Where do I use them? Where do I use them? It just reminded me that within 50 days after... God had brought them out of, Israel, uh, out of Egypt, they were turning their back on God. And we ought never turn our back on God. Okay? The second thing he warned them against was sins that came from idolatry. Idolatry in and of itself is not the end. There will be other things. There will be the sexual immoralities. There will be the cheating. There will be the lying. There will be those things that come along. And he warns the people of, of, of Corinth against these things. When we do not see God as the one who has given us his word to follow, we will follow other things. The third thing he warned against was being impatient with God. We never get impatient with God, do we? John Calvin says, Let us therefore take notice that the, fount the fountain of that evil against which Paul here warns us is impatience. 
when we wish to go before God and do not give ourselves up to be ruled by him, but rather wish him to bind, uh, I'm sorry, wish to bind him to our inclination and law. When we say, God, I've got a better plan than you do, so just move on over. Move on over. I don't know about you. You probably have never done that. I have to tell you I've done that. And he warns us against that. He warns us against that because there's not life in that. The fourth thing he warns us against is murmuring against God. While the scriptures talk about the people murmuring against Moses and Aaron, they were really murmuring against God. If the minister is using God's word and teaching God's word, and you are murmuring against God's word that's being taught by the preacher, you are murmuring against God. You go, yeah, you just want to say that so the people say, gee, isn't he wonderful listening to him? You know what Paul said? Paul said, I want you to be like the Bereans. I want you to be by the Bere- like the Bereans. I want you to check out in Scripture. That's why I always love when people go, I've got my Bible. I'm watching what you're saying, God. What we need to be doing is we need to be seeing what God says in his word to us. And make sure that those of us who are in the place or teaching as God would want us to teach, that we're teaching God's word. I would also suggest to you in his faithfulness, God states that all temptation that we face is common. Is it not true that Solomon said that there is nothing new under the sun? Nothing new? I love what Gordon Green said when he's talking in the book of James. What in particular impedes us from drawing near to God? The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the sin around us, invites us to pursue self-indulgent passions. Our flesh the sin inside us, seeks autonomy rooted in pride. And third, and the devil seeks to steal away our souls from God. This was true in the day that that James wrote it. It was true in the day that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. It is true to our day as well. We say things are so much worse than they were at Paul's time. I don't think so. I don't because you know what the Corinthians were saying? Yeah, but things are so much worse here in our time than they were for the Israelites. I don't think so. You and I face temptations that are common down through the ages. We just have different things that we focus on. We have things that will pull us away from God. And he says, be careful, be careful where you stand, because it's easy to fall away. I would suggest to you in his faithfulness, God makes a way of escape. William Barclay says the word way for escape is really a mountain pass with the idea of an army being surrounded by the enemy and then suddenly seeing an escape route to safety. Like a mountain pass, the way of escape isn't necessarily an easy one. Have you ever been there and the temptations have come and you said to yourself, there is no way out? I guarantee you that God will make a way of escape. There's some mountain pass that's there. Well, what might those things be? 
The first thing that I would say to you, remember, temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Temptation is not sin. Testing is not sin. How we handle the testing is there. And it's at that point that God says, I've made a way out. Well, how? Well, we trust his sovereignty. Have you dedicated yourself to the sovereignty of God, knowing that he knows what's best for you? I'll tell you what. Sometimes in my life, I think I know what's best for me. Sometimes it doesn't work out when I think I know what's best for me. But it always works out when he knows what's best for me and moves in that way. This third thing that I would suggest to you is that we need to know the scriptures. We need to know the scriptures. The psalmist says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the temptations that Jesus faced. He just said, ah, don't worry about it, right? And what did he do? He used God's word, didn't he? In each one of the temptations, he used what God had said about being faithful to the God of the universe because Jesus came to do one thing, and that was to glorify his Father. When we start that race with Jesus Christ, our one passion ought to be to glorify God. When we sin, we need to recognize that we do have a confession, that, that we have confession, that we've sinned, and he can make us righteous. I love back in 1 John 1, 9, he says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and unjust to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. One of the things that John also tells us, if you say that you have no sin, you are a liar. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Each and every one of us has faced temptation and each and every one of us have fallen in that temptation. And each and every one of us, if we are to be what God wants us to be, need to take ourselves to God and fall before him and say, I'm sorry, Father, I want. I don't know about you, though. There are so many times that I go, Father, I've said this before. I've really messed up. And he says, I still love you. Come here. I want you to be my child. I can use you. What Satan wants is he wants you to think the temptation is sin so that you move yourself out of the way of God, out, out, out of, out, away from what you think is God and telling yourself that you can't be used by God. Or he will tell you that you have sinned and God can't use you. God over and over in the Old Testament used the people. Should we not look for God? escape and continue to give in to sin, we, like the Israelites, will face discipline. Somebody said to me, well, preaching hellfire and brimstone this morning, huh? I pray that I'm just preaching what God says. You know, the interesting thing is that later on, we're going to take part in the Eucharist. In the Eucharist, we will find Jesus Christ, the rock, you know what Paul warns the Corinthians about? Not eating in an unworthy manner. Don't eat in an unworthy manner. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. It will tell you, don't eat in an unworthy manner. You know, that word means irreverently. 
when we come before the Eucharist, when we come to receive the Eucharist, when we say the Eucharistic prayer, let's bow ourselves before God in reverence that he's present with us and walking alongside of us. He's the one that gives sustenance to us, not just physically, but spiritually. That's the idea. You know what he said to the Corinthians? If you eat, if you drink, in another worthy manner. Some of you are sick. And you know what? Some of you have even died. Do you know when I first recognized the spiritual presence of God in the Eucharist is when I read those words. It's not just a memorial. It's an oath that I'm making to God, that God has made to me, that Jesus Christ is in in the Eucharist and in me to be the person that God wants me to be. It's not easy. It's not easy living a Christian life in the world in which we live. But guess what? It wasn't easy living a Christian life in the Corinthian times either. Okay. My prayer is we would see that our God is a faithful God. We'd move away from anything that gets in the way of worshiping him. And that we see his faithfulness to draw us to himself. A writer by the name of James Boyer, and I, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know that he's any great theologian. But he wrote something. If Paul were to write a letter to the evangelical Bible-believing churches of the late, he says, 20th century, and I would suggest to you the 21st century, America, I believe it would be much like 1 Corinthians. Their world was like our world, the same thirst for intellectualism, the same permissiveness toward moral standards, the same fascination for the spectacular, and their church was like our church, proud, affluent, materialistic, fiercely eager for intellectual and social acceptance by the world, doctrinally orthodox, but morally and practically conformed to the world. Pray that that not, might not be something that our church would be said about our church. But if we look at the overall church of Jesus Christ, or the overall church, I'm not even going to say of Jesus Christ, those who call themselves churches in the United States, this is what Paul, this is what God says. And we need to say to ourselves, is there anything here that I need to take a look at? We started our service this morning with the collect. And we did the collect for purity, and then we brought up the collect. And Father Don prayed the collect. You know, collects are prayers, right? They're prayers. This is the way I'd like us to end the serve, the, my, my homily today. I'd like for you to pray with me this collect for the day because it talks about how things come into our lives and it's only through God that we have a way of escape. So pray with me. Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in bodies and inwardly in our souls that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assail and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, 
who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Father, I pray that this would be our prayer on a daily basis. Amen.